All right, well, good morning. Hey, thank you all for having me this morning. My name is Jeremy. Um, grew up in Pampa, Texas. Married a girl from just down the road in Panhandle. Um, and in 2011, we, uh, we planted Redeemer Pampa. And so it's, it's really good to be here with you as we um, were sitting in a living room last year, or 10 years ago, roughly. I don't know where you were 10 years ago, um, but in the, the spring, do I need to move around? You good? Okay. Um, as, as we were sitting in the spring, early summer of 2011, there was a small group of us in a living room praying about what the Lord was doing and stirring among us in Pampa, um, looking to, to plant a church and knowing from the beginning that we wanted to be a part of planting churches across the panhandle. And so this morning is, is a grace from the Lord as He just has continued to pour out mercy and grace and faithfulness and has met with us um, over the last decade to see this group of believers here this morning um, is such an encouragement um, to, my, to my heart and to my soul. So thank you for that. My wife and boys are back in Pampa. My, my sweet daughter, Carson, joined me this morning. So we're, we're glad to be here with you. Um, I know last week, uh, Ricky preached um, your first of first sermon in your core value series on the Bible and, and looking at why we, why we take it serious, why we're rooted and grounded in it. And so this, this morning, we're going to continue that. Um, and and as some of you may be readers, right? Like not just of scripture, but just of good literature. And I remember as a kid, I loved to read. One of my favorite things about being out of school was the ability to go to the library um, during the summer, check out books, and read all summer long. And as I read, I always placed myself as the main character, right? I always saw myself as the hero. I always resonated with the hero. And I just assumed that everyone did. And it was always shocking to me to find that there were folks who, they didn't see themselves that way. Right? They saw themselves as, as another character in the book. Um, and yet as we come to Scripture, one of the things that, that people will often do is they will read themselves into the text. Right? They'll find themselves and, and they're looking to say, okay, where, where am I in this? And not in a means of where's humanity in this, but like they, they kind of read themselves into it. Right? We, we've seen this even with stories like David and Goliath, right? where we're, we want to talk about us being David and the giants that we face. And yet this morning, our desire is to see where is Jesus in the story, right? Like where do we see him um, woven throughout the this, this story of Scripture? And so if you have a Bible or a device that you'll be looking at the, the, the text with us this morning, we'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 7, right? So maybe your, your assumption would be, hey, we're, we're going to talk about Jesus, we're going to go into the New Testament, but we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Um, and as you're turning there or typing um, 2 Samuel, let me give you just a little bit of, um, of an update of what's going on in this, this era of history. First and 2 Samuel are actually one book. Um, they just were divided because of size. Um, it's telling one story. And this book is roughly 3,000 years old. Okay? And it is telling the story of the nation of Israel as they're leaving the period of the judges, right? Where they didn't have one unified king, but there were more tribal leaders. And, and if you're in the book of Judges, what you'll see is it'll say, well, I think five times throughout the book of Judges, um, that everyone did what was right in their own eyes because there was not a king. And so we see a period of lawlessness, um, of, of, of rampant sin, um, of a lot of despicable behavior. And so 1 Samuel is following the period of the Judges. And what we're seeing 
is, is leaving the judges behind in the rise of a monarchy, the first king. And the people begin to cry out. They say, hey God, we want you to give us a king, or we want you to give us a king like the nations. Like one that looks like everybody else, because they were feeling left out. And God is saying, listen, what actually you're doing is you're rejecting me, because I've been your king. I've led you. I've provided for you. I've protected you. I've guided you. I've, I've ruled you. And in wanting a king like the nations, you're, you're ultimately saying you're rejecting me. And so what we see then is, is Saul, right? They get a, a man who is handsome, who's a head above everyone else, who is this like big, bold figure. And he is really um, a judgment from the Lord on the people of God. And while he rules for decades, a second king is anointed. Because of Saul's disobedience, the throne and, and his house continuing to keep the throne is ripped away from him. And David is anointed as king while Saul is still king. And so he has this long, arduous road to the throne where there's a betrayal, where Saul knows that he's been anointed and tries to kill him um, a multitude of times in many ways. Right? That we see the one the Lord has chosen to lead his people versus the one that the people have chosen to lead themselves. And so 1st and 2nd Samuel is really a historical kind of theology looking at God's faithfulness to his people as one king is there and is being removed and as the second king is being raised up that will lead the people of God well. And so where we are in 2nd Samuel at this point is David is finally on the throne. He's made Jerusalem his capital politically. He's brought the Ark of the Covenant, right, this symbol of God's presence among his people to Jerusalem. So it's both the political capital and it's the spiritual capital, right? And now there's been peace amongst a lot of the enemies, right, because of David's military accomplishments. And so really for the first time, the people of God are where they're supposed to be with peace, um, reigning with a king after God's own heart. And so that kind of quickly gets us to where we're at this morning in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so we're going to pick up and read beginning in verse 1 and look at, and look at this chapter. Now when the king lived in his house, meaning David, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all my people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, of whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over all my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will, make, I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them. So they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel 
and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you, your house and your kingdom shall be made forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And so what we see here in the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 7 is this, is one that God is able to take care of himself. Right, like that David is, is assuming because he's won these victories, he's unified the nation, he's got a political kingdom, a religious kingdom. He's thinking, I now need to honor God by building him a temple. I need to build a place to store the Ark of the Covenant. And yet God tells him, listen, I, I've, been, I've been traveling with my people since I brought them out of Egypt. And I haven't asked anyone to build me a house. I haven't asked anyone to care for me in this way. I'm capable of doing this. If, if, you, if you're familiar with 1 Samuel, there were multiple times where God would win victories, right, against the Philistines and others without even an army being involved, right? That he is capable of taking care of himself, of providing for himself. And instead, what he tells David is this, is you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build your house. And he doesn't mean a literal house, but he means a legacy, a lineage. He's saying the throne is going to stay in your family. I took it from Saul, but it's going to remain in the line of David. First Chronicles 22 verse 8 tells us that David doesn't get to build the temple because of the blood that he shed. Like because he had so many military um, um, battles because of the blood that he shed that he was not the one who was going to build the house of God. And it's, but even in the midst of this, look at the promises we see in verses 9 and 10. God tells him, listen, I've been with you wherever you went. I've cut off all your enemies from before you. So I'm going to make your, great, your name great. I'll appoint a place for my people Israel. I'll plant them there. Um, and, and then I'm going to give you rest from your enemies. Like God has given these great and tremendous promises to David. You're not going to build my house. Your son's going to do that. But I'm going to make your name great. You're going to have peace. And you're going to have this place. And so his son Solomon is actually the one who's going to build the temple. Right? If you continue in the story, Solomon will build it. But quickly, I want us to look at Deuteronomy 17. Beginning in verse 15. Before Israel ever had a king, God gave them some, some expectations of what that should look like. The end of verse 14, he says, when you have the land and you dwell in it, you will say, set a king over me like the nations that are around me. Right. This was their request for Saul. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Right. This is David. One from among your brothers, you shall you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Listen to verse 16. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself. Or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. 
and he shall not require many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So there's these warnings, right? You're not going to put a foreigner over you. Um, not a lot of gold, not a lot of horses, not a lot of women. And yet, if you are familiar with David's son Solomon, he does all of these things. Turn over to 1 Kings chapter, chapter 10, beginning in verse 26. Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. So we see him acquiring tons, thousands of horses. Look at verse 3 of chapter 11. Solomon had three, sorry, had 7,000, 700 wives. It doesn't matter at that point how many zeros, right? He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And listen, his wives turned away his heart, right? It was the warning that we see in Deuteronomy 17. And if you go back to chapter 10, verse 21, all of King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. All the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon, Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon, right? Because of the wealth, the excess, and the gold. And so we see, right, that David's line, his house, his lineage has been promised the throne forever. We're, we're told in Deuteronomy 17, right, like what the king should look like. And he's given these three specific warnings. Solomon breaks all of them. Right? Like he doesn't keep any of them. And yet, if we go back to 2 Samuel 7, he says this. He shall build a house for my name, which Solomon does, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. But he goes on to talk about that he's going to commit an inequity. He's going to sin. And so we, we, we have this, this struggle here that Solomon is fulfilling much of what we see in 2 Samuel 7. It's been promised to David, but he's not a perfect king. He's got sin. He's not following the things that God has set out for him. And so we need to note this word in verse 13, the throne of his kingdom forever. Right? And you're going, okay, wait, we still haven't gotten to Jesus yet. Like, this is supposed to be about how Jesus is, the, is kind of the thread of Scripture. And I want you to think of Jesus as king and think of horses. Right? He's the one who borrowed a colt, right, to ride in to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He didn't have many horses, he borrowed one to ride in. Who wouldn't have many wives. Here was a man who was single. Who would not have an excess of wealth and of gold. Right? This is the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 tells us, right, that he who was rich became poor for our sake. That we who were poor would become rich. Right? We're, we're beginning to see this glimpse of wait a second, one without horses, one without wives. One without excessive wealth. And so what's happening is, is that 2 Samuel 7 is actually a pivotal moment in the history of Israel. It's beginning to swing them to say, hey, there's another king who's coming. There's this messianic hope beginning to be laid out that, listen, David, as good of a king as he was, was not a rescuer. Solomon, who will build the temple, is not our rescuer. We're still going to need another one. 
We're going to need one whose throne will last forever. So listen, this is Isaiah chapter, chapter 9. A passage that we often read at Christmas time. But in light of 2 Samuel 7, will you listen to verses 6 and 7? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Right? And so 2 Samuel 7 begins to be this place where people begin to go, wait a second, God's doing something. And He's going to send us a king that's going to reign forever. And so the prophets begin to write, hear from the Lord and write about it and give hope and encouragement. We see that in Isaiah 9. We, we can go to Jeremiah chapter 31 and hear this, beginning in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, know the Lord. For they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Right? So there's this, this hope that's just kind of being laid. Like, what is God doing? What is he, what's he promising to us? It's why Jesus later on would look at the, at the Pharisees and say, listen, you have studied the scriptures, right? And yet you've missed me. That God has been laying these clues and these hints throughout. Even in David's long and arduous right, trip to the throne, we see that the Son of Man, the King, Jesus, right, doesn't have an easy trip to the throne in this life with, with betrayal and death. What we're seeing here in 2 Samuel 7, a thousand years before Jesus will come on the scene in the form of a babe, is that there's another layer to this story being told. That Solomon is going to fulfill much of this, but he doesn't fulfill all of it because there's another story being told. There's one story in Scripture, one ark that is being told and being held together by the person and the work of Jesus. If you go all the way back to Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve have sinned, they've been kicked out of the garden, and they're in the process of being cursed by God because of the rebellion. In verse 15, he says, But listen, there's going to be one who's going to come who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And his heel's going to be struck, but he's going to crush the head. Right? It's, it's his first picture of the gospel, this first hope that God in the midst of our sin and our rebellion is going to do something, that there's a plan to make us right with him. We can turn over then to, to Genesis 12 and we see Abram, who was a pagan, and God pulls him out of that and says, you're going to follow me. You're going to know me and you're going to trust me and you're going to be mine. And he tells him in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 12, that through your lineage, 
through your family, a nation is going to be built that will bless the nations of the world. Like all of the world will be blessed because of you who doesn't yet have an heir. Right? We know that this is the nation of Israel, the birth of the nation of Israel, of whom right, will eventually birth Jesus. We get to Deuteronomy 17, which we read earlier. We were being told, hey, the nation of Israel who's been taken out of slavery is going to have a land. and They're going to have a king. Right? And this is the way the king should live. We get to 2 Samuel 7. We're being told, listen, it's going to be from David's line and his lineage that God's going to do a work that is incredible. And Solomon will fulfill some of it, but Solomon can't fulfill all of it. And with this messianic hope for the next thousand years, they wait in anticipation, wondering, what is God doing? And so let's pick up in Luke chapter 1. In light of 2 Samuel 7 and Isaiah 9, in this story that's being woven, listen now to verse 32 of Luke 1. I'm sorry, I'm going to start verse 31. Talking to Mary. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Right? Like, so as, as the angel speaks to Mary, we hear 2 Samuel 7. Right? Like the lineage of David. A kingdom. A throne. Forever. Right? Like it's, it's all being tied together. But this has been uh, prophesied. This has been promised for a thousand years that God is doing something. In John, when John the Baptist, right, like he sees Jesus, he says, look, behold the Lamb of God coming to take the sin of the world. John 1 tells us that, that Jesus came and, and the Word dwelled among us. Right, that means He tabernacled among us. Right, it's the house of God coming and being with us. We're reminded in 2 Samuel 7 that it says that God had traveled. He had been with His people. And now here is God, the God-man, Jesus, in the flesh, incarnate, the God-man dwelling among us, traveling with us in the flesh. In Matthew 19, 28, He tells the disciples, listen, I have a throne. I'm going to sit at the right hand of the Father forever. In John 18, 36, he tells right during his trial, listen, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my disciples would fight, but it's not of this world. We think of books like Proverbs, right? Where we see wisdom. You're going, okay, where do we find Jesus in wisdom? Well, in 1 Corinthians 1, 30, we're told that Jesus is our wisdom. He is our wisdom. And so we go to Matthew, right, where we remember the, the story, the, the Sunday school story of the man, the foolish man building his house upon the sand and the wise man building his house upon the rock. Right? What happened to both of those men? Both of those men had a storm come. They didn't, neither one of them avoided the storm, but one of them had built his house on a foundation that would withstand the storm. Wisdom. Jesus. Right? So when we go to a book like Proverbs, we're seeing 
right? Wisdom is the way that we interact with creation, with the world, as God has best laid out for us to do in the person and the work of Jesus. Right? And what we begin to find, and I hope light bulbs begin to go off, is wherever we turn in Scripture, we are looking for Jesus. We're seeing the story of Jesus being woven throughout. Right? That even though we have 66 books written over thousands of years by multiple authors in multiple continents and in three languages, right? That there's one story ultimately being told. And it's the story of God's rescue of His people by Jesus. So that we would return to where we were started, where we were created for. And that's to dwell with God forever. To be with Him. So, Jesus gives the rest, right? As they left Egypt, they didn't find the promised land for 40 years. Hebrews reminds us that Jesus, He secures the rest that we're longing for, that we need. The cross reminds us that Jesus defeats His enemies. Right? That He's defeated sin. He's defeated Satan. And He has defeated death. None of these enemies, right, hold power over us anymore because of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And so when we go back to that story that we mentioned at the beginning of David and Goliath, right? We're not, we're not David defeating our biggest Goliaths. Jesus is David. Defeating an enemy bigger than we can imagine. And that is sin, and that is Satan, and that is death. Right? David is pointing us to Jesus through the throne, and through his victory, and through his righteousness, and through our need to have rest in our enemies be vanquished. David does it in part. Solomon does it in part. Jesus does it completely and fully and forever. And is inviting us in to His kingdom. So let's go back to 2 Samuel 7 for just a moment. So God lays this out through the prophet Nathan to David. Let's, let's see David's response. Pick up in verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. And he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all of this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. There is none like you. There is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And now you, O Lord, became their God. Go down to verse 28. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that you may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. David responds with humility and praise and worship. He's not beating his chest saying, I'm the king and I deserve it. 
it's, it's right that you would do this, God. He says, who am I that you would pour out this grace and this mercy upon me? God, it's, it's no small thing for me, but it was a small thing for you. You are tremendous and worthy of worship. And then David begins to say, God, I know you're faithful. And he goes back to the past because you chose Israel and you brought them out of Egypt. And you've led them and you've cared for them and you've provided for them. And he praises God for the present, saying, listen to what you're doing for my family even now. And then he praises God for the future, saying, and you're going to do this forever? How great are you, O Lord? Past faithfulness, present faithfulness, and future faithfulness. Which leads us now back to us. So if we go to Acts chapter 1, right? we, we wove the story all the way to the cross. Right? And then in the resurrection, right, as Jesus defeats his enemy, he spends 40 days on earth. And in Acts 1, he's in his last moments with the disciples. And as they watch, he ascends to heaven to be sit at the right hand of the Father. And they're standing there, right, watching this scene, this incredible scene. And the angel of the Lord says, Okay, um, what are you doing? What did Jesus tell you to do? Right, because Jesus had told them, listen, you're going to make disciples of all the nations. Beginning in Jerusalem. The, like the, the, the Spirit of God is going to fall. I'm leaving my comforter for you. Right? And so you're going to take what I've taught you to the world. How long is the question they ask? How long? And he responds with this, until you see the Son of Man return in the same way that he left. There's a day where Jesus is going to split the sky and he's going to return for us. And every knee is going to bow. Some going, that's my king in recognition of the kingdom to which they belong. Others will bow a knee in fear because of how they see him now. But every knee will bow. Now listen, church. The story's not quite over. But we are living between Acts 1 and, and, and Revelation 21. Listen to how Scripture ends chapter before the very end of, of Revelation. We see this. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Right with mankind. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And so we see scripture ending where it begins. That, that where we belong is with God. That's where we're headed. For those who know and love and trust and treasure Jesus. But we are living right now between Acts 1 and Revelation 21. The story, we have been invited into it because the mission hasn't ceased yet. Because Jesus hasn't split the sky again. We are on mission with God. For His name, for His sake, for His kingdom. Listen, when I used to read literature and, and picture myself as the hero, um, some of that was childlikeness. But there was something in my heart that said I wanted to be remembered. I wanted to have a legacy. I wanted to be known. I knew even as a child that death was coming quickly for me, right? Like that life is but a vapor. 
And so I was like, I gotta, if I'm going to be something, I've got to be great at it. If I'm going to be a baseball player, I've got to be in the Hall of Fame. If I'm going to be a doctor, I've got to cure kids. I, I need to be remembered. I want to be known. And so I always saw myself as the hero. Church, God has freed me from that. Because what he said is whatever story I was writing for myself pales in comparison to the story we've been invited into. God has left us a story and a mission to be a part of. And it is one that will go on into eternity. For his name and his renown and his glory. And so right now in Border, Texas and in Pampa, Texas and across the world, we get to point people to a living God. Who is able to heal and save and rescue and bring hope and bring peace and bring mercy. Whose worship, who is worthy of our worship. So that's what y'all are doing is you're like putting out a, a lighthouse and border to be a body of believers who will live out the one another's of Scripture, who will find yourself anchored in the ancient living Word of God, making His name great, right? Entering into His story for His glory. And so my encouragement to you would be this, is to see Him in Scripture. Don't miss Him, but to see Him. And to know that wherever you turn, you're looking for a hook to hang this on, right? Is, is this in creation? We know how God intended it. Is this in the, the fall and in the corruption? This is a reminder of how things are broken. Okay, I, I see that. Is this in the fact, the anticipation of the Messiah coming? Okay, that's where I hang that. Is this in Christ? Okay, I know where to hang that. Is this in the church? I know where to hang that because that's the era we're in. Or is this in a promise of where He's coming back for us? Right, that whether we're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, we're looking to hang it on this line, this one story, this one arc of Scripture that Jesus is making us right with the Father for God's glory for all time. The mission isn't over. And it is a much better story than any of us can write on our own. I'm so excited for what the Lord is doing here. I'm knowing that y'all are rooting yourself in the Word of God. You're going to get to build this out and be a part of what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do for all time. Um, let's, let's pray.